So we wanted to check in with Caroline Colleen, the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, when you look at the numbers, and we're seeing the numbers going up more and more, Tuesday uh, was the last reporting day with 525 new cases of COVID-19 in BC. We're also seeing the hospitalization numbers getting uh, back to levels that we haven't seen in a few months, and unfortunately seeing more deaths. What numbers do you look at or stick out for you as far as when you, when you look at them and try and get a, a more clear picture of what's happening? Yeah, so I like to look at the reported cases. Obviously, that's, I think, the, the best public data that we have. Um, and and we can look at that by health region. They post those um, on the website, and there's a, there's a spreadsheet you can look at. And then I look at the doubling times. So if we continue on the path that we've been on for the past, say, week or 10 days, how long would it take for those case numbers to double? And that's pretty scary, you know, if that's five days, which it isn't in BC, then you'd expect, you know, from 500 to 1,000 in five more days. Uh, whereas if it's longer, then obviously you have uh, more lead time. So so I like to look at those numbers and just try to understand how fast it's growing and where we're at in the different health regions in BC. And so when we look, when we talk about the doubling time, where are we with that in BC right now? Um, I think it, it differs a little bit by health region, but I think it's sort of 10 to 14 days in Vancouver Health and Vancouver, uh, sorry, Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, and then we're starting to see slight upticks at very low case numbers, but, but still slight upticks uh, in the other health regions. And so that's looking at then, is that if we break it down, that's how many people are, when we have one case, how many people are, are is that person infecting? Well, we look at that too. That's the the RT number, and you've seen those uh, in the slides. You might we might see them again today. Uh, that would give yeah, it's an estimate of the average number of new infections per case. So if we're if we're all infecting one and a half others, um, then it's going to grow, right? And if we're infecting fewer than one other person, then we expect the cases to be declining on average. Um, so yeah, we'll see those. I think those usually are landing in BC around sort of 1.3, somewhere between 1.3 and 2. So definitely seeing growth and consistent growth and exponential growth and fairly rapid growth. So I think uh, you know that's what we see when we look at the numbers across BC and then aggregated uh, just by health region. And what about the number of tests being performed and the percentage then when you compare it to the, the number of total tests? Yeah, so testing volumes, um, I haven't looked at today, so I'm not, not super up to date on those. Test positivity is one you hear a lot of discussion about. And that's a bit complicated because of how it's computed. You need to think about, you know, some private sector tests may be in there. If somebody's tested more than once because they work in, say, the film industry, are they counted per test or per person? And so there are some subtleties there. Uh, but the big picture is really if we're testing the same kind of, of people, the same base population, and the positivity goes up, that means the prevalence is going up. So it's another sign that cases are rising. Uh, because we do often hear, uh, or sometimes the argument is made uh, from people, obviously um, not uh, that have the expertise that you have, which is why we're talking to you today, but, but people will sometimes brush it off and say, oh, well, there's only those higher numbers because we're testing more people. Right. Uh, if we test more people, um, we expect more positives, but we don't expect a higher fraction of the tests coming back positive. What, what we want to see when people say, well, positivity rates should be 1%, that would mean you're testing 100 people for every positive case you find. So, so that's not just driven by testing more and more. 
So the fact that our fraction of the tests coming back is positive is increasing is also a warning sign. As far as I know, unless people have really changed uh, their the way they want tests or how often they want to be tested, as far as I know, we haven't changed any policy around who's testing. We haven't gone out and started testing armies of, of random people at Metro Town, or you know, we're not we're not sort of doing a a kind of epic search uh, in the ran- random population for to do case finding. So I don't think this is driven just by doing more tests. Uh, yeah, and that was my understanding as well. And you kind of, you mentioned the film industry, and I think that is one area where they're tested repeatedly, people that are in their shooting bubbles or, or, or shooting scenes and that are that have very close contact. Uh, but that seems like it's kind of different and removed from when we talk about the daily numbers in the province as a whole or by health region. Yeah, this is not driven by suddenly some huge outbreak related to the film industry and their testing. That's not what's happening here. And, you know, if that was what it was, then Bonnie Henry wouldn't be advising us not to have gatherings in our house. You know, we're seeing this in workplaces, in households, in private gatherings. Uh, and throughout our community. It's, it's not kind of in one sector that, that's driven by testing. Uh, so looking at these numbers and where we are now compared to where we were, say, in March, April, May, uh, do you think something like what we're doing now, this so-called the circuit breaker restrictions, this two weeks of trying to get everybody to buy in to, to doing just that, not having the social gatherings and to, to staying away from others, will that lead, do you anticipate that will lead to the change in the numbers that we're looking for? I think it will lead to something. And if people really do it, if people really follow it, of course, we don't know what they're actually doing. But if they do, then it will lead to declining numbers starting, you know, after about earliest five days to a week after the change, because people turning up today are not infected today. They were infected some time ago. Right. Right. Um, But then after a decline of a week or two, then if we reestablish whatever we've been doing for the past three weeks, you know, that we can't eliminate the virus in two weeks, and we know that, and we know we won't all be immune in two weeks. So I think it's important to have these pauses and slowdowns because it gives us a, a bit of time and slows the, the rate for what we do next. But we will need a plan in place because two weeks won't solve this problem. Right. Even if we break that chain of, of the virus spreading, it seems like after two weeks, if we kind of have taken ourselves out of the fire for two weeks, we're going right back in. Well, we can't fully break the chain in two weeks because what we're doing now is not the same as every single individual in our population is completely alone in a room for two entire weeks. There will still be household exposures. There are still shops open. There are still restaurants and bars and other indoor venues open. There are still workplaces open. So the idea that we break the circuit, um, you know, if you thought every single infection, we want to make sure they don't infect anybody else like at all. And we're going to do that in two weeks. That would involve like no healthcare, no grocery store, no bus, no nothing it, to do that. I don't think we could do that. That would be logistically impossible. So the language of circuit breaker is already really optimistic. Right. And, and I guess, too, that's not what the goal is. Like, like you said, no. it's not it's not a reasonable goal. The goal is that we're going to uh, trying to, to pull back and to protect the most vulnerable and figure out how we're going to li- then live with this virus. Well, I don't know if that's the the goal. That's there are lots of dangers in that because no subgroup of us is an island. Even people who are literally on islands aren't <laughs> isolated from everyone else. So the idea that we'll figure out exactly who's vulnerable and we'll make sure you know there's a special grocery time for them, or you know this that, that would be really hard to do in practice. I I think no one believes that that truly we break all the circuits in two weeks. So when I was describing that, that was really a bit of a straw man there. Um, 
but I think we do need this slowdown. We need people to, to do something for two weeks. And I think it's testing the waters and thinking through what is the best way to keep as much open as we can while not having a raging pandemic in B.C. All right. Caroline, always good to talk to you and get your expertise on this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, taking a look at what's happening in the real estate market in parts of B.C. And the B.C. Real Estate Association is reporting that a total of 11,051 residential unit sales were recorded by the MLS in October. So just last month. That is an increase, though, of almost 44 percent from October of 2019. So what is causing this increase? So we are joined now by Brendan Ogmanson, the chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, that seems like a big increase under normal times, let alone during a pandemic. Is that? Yeah, yeah, it is. Part of it is, you know, we're comparing to a fairly low 2019. Everything's kind of been forgotten, but 2019 was a pretty weak year uh, in the housing market. Uh, the other thing, though, is that we're seeing a lot of pent-up demand from sales that didn't happen in the spring, kind of the worst of the of the initial pandemic. So all of those sales have been pushed into the fall and the winter. So it's sort of artificially all that pent-up demand is really pushing sales kind of to to what to record levels for the for the month. Um, as as that pent-up demand starts to fade, we'll see things kind of normalize. But that's a lot of what's going on right now. So, so it seems like people then maybe hit the pause button a little bit during the pandemic, which which under, makes sense, and I think people would understand. But it also seems like we were talking about this during the pandemic that we never really saw that that huge lull. No, there certainly wasn't a lull. There was a pretty severe dip in sales where everyone kind of held their breath and then exhaled when, you know, it turned out, when we look at the job market, uh, really kind of high-wage high employment is actually up about 5%, so jobs that tend to pay a little bit more uh, are up 5% compared to pre-pandemic, and now interest rates are at record, record lows. So a lot of that means that we didn't really have a sustained lull. Everything kind of came back very quickly. So we've seen this as far as the number of sales. What's happening with prices? So on the price side, it's been pretty interesting because, again, in a recession, normally you have uh, supply rising very quickly because people can't afford their homes and are are forced to list them. This time around, we've actually had a a negative supply shock. Supply in the market is very low. Demand's pretty high. That's putting a lot of upward pressure on prices. What we're seeing is, is even more increase in prices, partially because a lot of where the demand is being focused is on more expensive single detached homes. Uh, when we look around the province, especially, uh, we're seeing you know, record average prices month after month in places like Chilliwack and Victoria and the Okanagan, uh, because a lot of people are just buying, you know, acreage or just extra space to kind of, as a refuge from the pandemic. They can afford to do so at, at these extraordinarily low rates. So a lot of that, the sort of those higher priced transactions are a bit higher of a share in the average. So that's also pushing the price up. Uh, You mentioned the Okanagan, and I was just going through some of the graphs uh, that were released today by your organization. Uh, That one seems uh, almost off the charts, a 32% change in price, uh, an increase in price, and a 118% increase in the number of sales. Yes, we see some pretty phenomenal uh, uh, numbers when we're looking year over year, especially when we're looking at at the prices. Again, last year was a bit of a, a down market, so we're comparing to kind of a low a low time, but also in places like the Okanagan, we're just seeing a lot of buying of more expensive properties. So it's not that, you know, we wouldn't say that the, every kind of 
um, uh, uh, home is up 30 uh, percent in uh, in the Okanagan. Like if we look at uh, they have sort of benchmark prices, and they're up about eight percent year over year. So there's about eight to ten percent of that that's just a very tight market pushing prices up. And then there's a lot of that that change year over year that's really just a skewness from a lot of purchases at the high end of the market. And, and I was going to ask that. Are, are there specific parts of the market then? Is it, uh, is it apartments? Is it people that are moving out and maybe buying bigger places and having home offices? Or is it investments? Do you know what, where it is that's really pushing this? Right now, it's, it's definitely single detached homes and, and houses with, with acreage. So there's a very clear trend uh, towards people just wanting space you know, so they can have a home office, so they can have a yard uh, something as a refuge. If you you know you can't go on vacation, you can't uh, generally kind of you know visit in restaurants with your friends. Um, people tend to are tending to to want to just invest any extra money they have in in space. Uh, so that that's the biggest trend that we're seeing is single detached homes are a much larger share of sales, uh, and 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 we're seeing some sort of migration uh, towards areas where that space is a little bit more affordable. Right, which would explain why we're seeing these numbers and, the, again, the double-digit increases when we look at places like Chilliwack, the Fraser Valley, Kamloops, and other areas. Yeah, exactly. So if you're in the Lower Mainland and maybe you were thinking about uh, retiring in the next five years, some, in a lot of cases the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of those plans or you're thinking about maybe working from home on a full-time basis. Again, this, this pandemic has sort of taken what maybe you were going to do in, in, in five years from now and kind of pushed it to, to the present. So we're seeing a lot of those trends of people, maybe they're, they're, they're retiring earlier, they're, they're shifting to working from home earlier than they thought because the technology is there now. And they're then uh, taking, uh, just accelerating those plans and then, and then, uh, and then buying in places that where they, maybe they were going to buy in a few years from now anyway. And you mentioned the low interest rates as well. How much of a factor do you think that is? Oh, it's, it's enormous. And we saw sort of the flip side of this in 2018 when rates were rising. Uh, and then we also had the B20 mortgage stress test, uh, which ultimately meant like a two, 300 basis point increase in your qualifying rate. Uh, that had a huge impact on the market that lasted about two years. These things are pretty symmetric. If we now have historically low uh, mortgage rates, we're getting a, lot, a real boost from that as well. And it's, it's expected to continue for quite some time, given that the Bank of Canada is committed to, to keeping their policy rate uh, at its current uh, uh, low of 0.25% until 2023. Not a lot of upward pressure on mortgage rates coming coming from, from the Bank of Canada or from economic conditions. So those rates should be around for a while, and that's really going to continue to provide a real boost to, uh, to home sales and, and prices over the next year. Does it give people the confidence as well, even though we are in a pandemic? I mean, the, the, the truth is, too, some people have lost jobs, people have had their hours reduced, people who own businesses have been hurt by this. Uh, but we don't see, at least the numbers I'm seeing, uh, it's not as though we've seen a huge spike in foreclosures. So does that help or we're seeing that people are figuring out how to make this work? Yeah, it's, and of course, there are tons of downsides to this pandemic. We're still at a very high level of unemployment. A lot of people are really struggling, and, and sectors are going to be improving at kind of different rates. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of foreclosures. Part of it is, is the CMHC mortgage deferral program uh, really bridged people, a lot of households through the most difficult part uh, of, the, of the pandemic, at least financially. Um, and, and, and so we're starting to see that program end in October. Uh, we won't see foreclosures, though, probably, because we're seeing rising prices. So if you, if you unfortunately can't afford your home anymore because of your, your job, you're most likely just going to sell because you're selling into a rising market. 
So if anything, right, you know, from kind of October on, we might see an uptick in, in listings. So just people having to list their, their homes, which, you know, considering we're at a point where we're, we're at about three months of supply, a really low level of supply in the market at current levels of, of sales, the market can really absorb that, that, that extra supply pretty easily and would actually welcome that extra supply so we can actually, you know, get down to a more sustainable rate of increase in home prices. All right. Interesting numbers released today. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us to walk us through them. Anytime. Thank you. Brendan Ogmanson is the chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association. 63.8% of Canadians have in fact ordered food online in some capacity during the last six months, whether that's takeout directly from a restaurant, a delivery app, something like Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes, meal kits or groceries themselves to make the food at home. So what is leading the trend? We know that the pandemic has a big role in this. Does this mean it will continue and become more and more popular into the future? Well, let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Were you surprised at all that people have shifted to an online food delivery? Well, uh, I, of course, uh, I think a lot of people are, are buying more food online, but I was a bit shocked by the numbers. Uh, apparently, I'm the only one in the country. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to, to basically uh, see 64% of, of Canadians, I mean, 64% of Canadians have actually ordered something online the last six months. That, that's a lot of people, and we are expecting almost half of the population uh, to order uh, food online at least once a week after the pandemic. So that's, that's a lot of traffic online. And so, it, and as a food distribution specialist, I go, well, if people are buying food online, does it mean that our market is now overstored? Essentially. Right. Maybe we have too many stores now. <laughs> Did it break it down? Because I would put myself in the group. I certainly have, I have ordered takeout and ordered from restaurants online, uh, but directly from the restaurant, uh, I've done that. I've never ordered groceries online. And even from a small reaction on Twitter, clearly I'm, I'm missing out because I got a flood of people tweeting back saying they do it all the time. Uh, but did it break down the difference between people who are ordering from restaurants as compared to people who might be ordering groceries? Yeah, so we actually looked at everything virtually. So we looked at uh, groceries, um, online groceries uh, with with uh, curbside pickup. We looked at the groceries with uh, with uh, home delivery. We looked at meal kits. We looked at also um, uh, direct to restaurants. So restaurants selling directly to consumers. Uh, we looked at farmers markets. We looked at process. We looked at everything because you see, the COVID really has opened things up from a distribution perspective. Everyone has access to the consumer now, and and a lot of people are trying to sell to all of us. And so there's lots of traffic, lots of options. So we actually looked at everything. And is the the number the reason that people gave one the most popular reason was convenience, which to me makes sense. But also, then why would it have taken a pandemic? Do you think to see these numbers surge? If the if it's convenience, you would have thought it would, it would always have been convenience. Well, it's about currency, right? Because uh, I think everyone knows that if you actually are looking for convenience. 
you're going to have to pay for it. But, uh, but if, if you're concerned about the virus, you're concerned about your health, uh, you don't want to get out uh, for whatever reason, uh, well, if you can actually can get someone else to do the work for you, that's great. A lot of people actually don't just don't enjoy grocery shopping. Uh, and, of course, some people just don't want to be bothered by uh, going to a grocery store. And, frankly, the grocery shopper now, today, is much more focused. Uh, we're all on a mission following a list. Uh, we basically we don't browse around. We just do what we need to do, and we go home. So we don't necessarily buy what we don't need. We're more aware what's in our home. And so it's it's a much more focused marketplace, and uh, some people say, well, might as well do that online then. If there's no pleasure to do that uh, in a store, to browse around and, and talk to people, um, I mean, some people are trying to develop the ability to smile with, uh, with eyes. <laughs> True. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I mean, with a mask and everything, it's just a different context. So I can see why people are willing to pay a little bit more uh, just to stay home in their pajamas and order in. Uh, was it surprising the number to you that the second uh, the, fo- the fo- was followed by the concern about COVID-19 and health, but it was only 13.8% that said that was their concern and why they had shifted to online? Here's, here's the big enigma for me. I'm in Nova Scotia, Halifax, in the Atlantic bubble. Mm-hmm. We've had five cases in the last seven days. Well, you guys are breaking records right now. Mm-hmm. We only have had five cases in the last week. Still, it is in this province where you seeing where we saw the highest rate of consumers ordering food online because they're concerned about the virus at twenty point three percent. So that that one was a bit strange because. There are no cases around, basically, and people are still concerned about the virus. So it's really a question of perceptions and, and, and concern about uh, someone's health, really. It doesn't matter how many cases are there out there. People are, are fearful. The virus, the virus is a virus. Yeah. And I mean, it makes you wonder, too, if that's if that's helping, if that's the reason why there are no cases and the numbers are down. Is it because people have people aren't going anywhere? I mean, we are. I mean, in Nova Scotia, people are in compliance for sure. But I can't really see. I mean, in Ontario, the population density is very different as well. Uh, But I actually was expecting, say, Ontario or Quebec or even Manitoba, because we collected the data just last week. I thought that really those provinces, you would have seen many more people concerned about about the pandemic and the virus. Uh, yeah, I thought those numbers would have been uh, higher as well. Um, one of the things I always find interesting, is, and in even talking to people anecdotally, there are some things that people are fine buying uh, online and having it delivered, things that are packaged, things that are, are not perishable. But I've always, I've always felt that people really like to pick out their own produce. Yeah, before the pandemic, I mean, people felt, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to allow someone I don't know to pick my own tomatoes, my own cucumber. But that seems to have disappeared a little bit <laughs> just because, you know, the focus is on something else. It's on a pandemic. It's on time. Uh, yeah, so people are valuing, uh, are willing to empower a complete stranger 
to pick their produce much more so than never before. And frankly, after the fact, uh, after the pandemic, it might, it, it will uh, very well continue. The thing about uh, the industry is that they are starting to learn how to make money selling food online. So the interface you're dealing with is much better. The service is much better. And people are noticing uh, there's going to be over $12 billion worth of investments uh, on on digital uh, food distribution and e-commerce uh, in Canada over the next five years. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And so it will compel a lot more people uh, to order online just because the industry will get better at it. Are you surprised at all that it, it seems to me like there's a bit of a disconnect when, when we talk about using the self-checkout? And if you use the self-checkout in a grocery store, inevitably somebody gives you the stink eye because you are suddenly the person <laughs> who's taken away every job of every checker in that store. Yet here we are and people have no problem making the shift to online. That's right. Yeah. But online, of course, someone has to deliver, has to do the work for you mm-hmm. uh, in a pick store. I'm, su- I'm sure that most of us have seen people walking around uh, with, a, uh, with a basket filling up an order for someone else. Uh, so you can still, people are probably saying, well, there's still someone doing the work. In fact, you're probably creating work because someone has to deliver that food to your door. So uh, in fact, uh, we, as a family, use Instacart, and two people, we're six people in our family, two people came over to our door to deliver our groceries a while back. And so it's hard to see how we're uh, ruining um, the, I mean, we're actually trying to keep the number of, of people working in the industry lower because you're seeing more people working. But the reality is that because of AI, because if the industry wants to become more efficient in that field, uh, it will need to use AI and, uh, and data analytics, and that will require fewer people, but those people will be paid better. Hmm. Interesting, interesting findings. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this more. Uh, Sylvain, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk with you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. On this day in 1938, it was the day the Lionsgate Bridge opened to pedestrian traffic. Yes, 1938 was when that happened. And according to people who are in the know, it snowed a little bit on that day as well. So I thought it would be fun to take a look back and maybe brush up on our facts and our knowledge of the Lionsgate Bridge. And joining me to do this is Michael Cluck a Vancouver-based author and artist. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, the, the bridge, I was reading up on it earlier and realized I had forgotten so many things about the bridge and the beginning days and the fact that there was even a toll for passengers if you were a passenger in a vehicle. Uh, yeah, and, and if you're as old as I am, and I am just about 70, you will remember the toll gates at the north end that were there and through until I think in 1963 that the um, the social credit government took the tolls off there and they took them off the second arrows too at that point as a statement of general prosperity and their good management of the province. 
Hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to believe uh, looking back at it, uh, the, the tolls and just the history of this bridge. When we talk about it as well, uh, even the fact, even getting to the point that the bridge was built, uh, from from my reading up on it again this morning, that it was discussed in the 1890s. It was the 1920s that plans started, and it wasn't even approved to be built until 1933. Yeah, and part of the reason for it was the um, uh, was the Guinness Company wanting to find a place to make some investments that were far away from Europe. 1933 is the year that Hitler comes to power in uh, in Germany. And the people at Guinness had, had long memories, and so they were looking for overseas investments. And they were able to pick up um, thousands of acres of tax sale lands on uh, the slopes of Hollyburn Mountain, so West Vancouver. And, uh, you know, pick them up for practically a song. And with their, their long-term vision, they thought, well, you know, eventually the economy will come back. Um, people will be able to own cars. Um, relatively wealthy people would be able to drive and climb all the way up the mountain and have these uh, these beautiful places. And so they named the, uh, the subdivision that they were uh, thinking of putting in the British properties and then they, of course, they looked around for a way that they could get people there in the modern way of the 1920s, 1930s, which was by car, by private car. And um, locally, there was a man named um, Albert Taylor, who was an engineer, and he had worked internationally. And he managed to convince uh, the Guinness people that they could finance this, and they put together a company, British Pacific Properties Limited, and with Depression-era wages being uh, depressed and, you know, I mean, who has money during a depression? Well, a brewery would have it for sure. And so they were able to put this together quite economically. But in the, in the standard of the time, when it opened in 1938, it was a toll bridge. And that, as, our, as we said, continued on for what would it be, 25 years, I guess, until, uh, until the early 1960s. And and the bridge itself, uh, I, I mean, I, I think people would agree it's quite a beautiful piece of architecture. Uh, some, some again saying it's it's the most uh, beautiful bridge north of the Golden Gate, and and just the way it spanned uh, such a uh, such a long span. But I, I understand as well in the beginning there was some controversy of the bridge from nowhere to nowhere. People really questioning why there was even a need for a bridge there. Well, particularly, you think of you're in year three. If well, when they're when they're proposing this year three, I guess of a, of a worldwide depression that showed no signs of lifting and changing, and you know the nowhere was Vancouver's downtown, effectively, but but also from Stanley Park, and there was a lot of controversy about cutting the uh, causeway through Stanley Park, but it was going to create good jobs, and um, and that seemed to sway a lot of people in that direction. And, um, you know, it just seemed like the West Vancouver ferry system had never been profitable, and West Vancouver didn't have very much of a population. North Vancouver stayed with its ferries until 1958. I think the West Van ferries ended about 1946 or 47, right after the war when uh, when gas rationing came off. And... um, but the um, but it's worth looking back also and saying that the first bridge across the uh, across Burrard Inlet was the second Narrows one and the the little railway bridge road rail bridge in the 1920s, but it kept getting knocked out by freighters, 
and uh, and it was actually out of commission for much of the uh, period of the 1930s. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a, a very interesting uh, history. Uh, a listener actually sent me a picture from uh, a newspaper that is from 19, it's from August 1st, 1956. And it's a picture of the toll collector at the time, Stu Shoemaker, uh, taking a ticket from a Mr. Smedman, uh, but showing that Mrs. Smedman didn't have to pay because that's when they took the passenger tolls. So the tickets that, uh, had, that they had purchased could be redeemed at a rate of four cents per trip. Pretty amazing, and, and people who with, with long memories, or you can get access into that of, of uh, Len Norris's cartoon collections from the 1950s, and he had more cartoons about the um, about the Landscape Bridge and about how crowded it was, and how well how, how overcrowded it was, and um, you know I didn't hear the term car strangled spanner until. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot later than that, but it, you know, the idea of the congestion on the bridge goes back a um, long, long time in the 1950s. Uh, interesting, for sure. Uh, Michael, I know you're also uh, talking about uh, the history of Vancouver. You have a book coming out uh, as well. Uh, I wanted to talk to you today about the bridge because it is uh, the, the day, the, the marking of the day that it opened in 1938. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the other iconic pieces of Vancouver and kind of the direction that the city is taking? Oh, well, you know, I'm pretty much a skeptic. Um, and, and this new book, Hearing Gone, as it's called, is it's not really a, a downer of a book in a way, but it's a, you know, a statement, I guess, that whatever it is that we're becoming is not a place that is you know, terrifically welcoming to the people who are here and people who are making salaries here, people with... Uh, with local incomes, and then also the, the uh, polarization of our society, which everybody knows about the homeless people and everything. So it's, it's mainly a little book of artwork, and it was intended as being um, a, a gallery, uh, kind of a gallery catalog for a show that was going to happen, may still happen, um, next spring. But the way things are going, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it'll be pushed off for a year or so. But, I, you know, I... On the on the specifics, some of the specifics, I think, you know, neighborhoods, people are valuing them, they're beautifully fixed up and so on. But there's a, um, a kind of a rush to profit, a rush to demolish that, uh, that I think is destroying the character of a lot of Vancouver. The downtown, effectively, is a bit of a free-for-all, and you would expect this in a commercial area. But uh, I think it's the residential areas, particularly, where we're seeing a kind of a change that is moving the van- moving Vancouver away from, well, whatever it was, you know. And a lot of people would say, well, Vancouver is just this crappy little city, and who cares? Um, and uh, we can build it with international architecture and so on. Um, interesting, you, you you know, we're talking about Lionsgate Bridge, and you can't talk about Lionsgate Bridge without Georgia Street in Vancouver, and it is getting the most uh, adventurous, I suppose you would say, architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, along there with uh, condos that will be multi-million dollar condos. And people talk about Coal Harbor as being a, a kind of a dying community because even though they're all the big buildings there, there are not that many people who seem to live there. So it's it's that kind of um, use of Vancouver, I guess, that is the subject of this little book that uh, that I've done. 
All right. Well, I look forward to seeing it and learning more of what you've put in it. We'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Yeah, nice talking to you and and happy birthday, Bridge. (laughs) Indeed. Let's bring in Mabel Tung, spokesperson with the Vancouver Society in support of democratic movement. Mabel, thanks so much for being back with us today. Thank you for having me here. What is your response to this announcement earlier today from the immigration minister? I'm pleased to uh, to listen to uh, uh, his announcement because uh, we have issued a statement signed by 118 civil society organizations and cross-party parliamentaries um, to offer a safe harbor program. And uh, today's announcement is really fulfilled uh, the request that we request. So I'm pleased about that. But one thing I want to point out is um, um, he didn't really mention in detail how to help um, some of the really desperate um, protesters in Hong Kong right now, they are in great danger. Uh, they have the risk of political prosecution and their passport have been confiscated uh, by the Hong Kong government. And um, he hasn't been mentioned anything like to help this group of people. They are in great danger. Um, so i a little disappointed on that part. What would you like to see done then or what could be done to help people that are in that great danger? I, I would like to see some, some category like uh, essential travelers, grant them uh, travel documents and assist their departure. Uh, because it is not a new thing to Canada. Uh, it has happened before. Uh, right after the June 4th, uh, 1989 massacre in Beijing, um, Canada with other countries uh, through Hong Kong has um, offered such a travel, uh, 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 essential travel visa to those um, protesters at that time. So I think um, this time uh, it seems, seems like a second part of the Tiananmen Square massacre. I, I think we, we can do it. I, I hope the government will look into it and see how we can help this group of people. Uh, are there any concerns as well? And the minister was asked also about the fact that this will likely anger uh, the communist government in China. Are there concerns that if people take advantage of this program, if they still have family in Hong Kong or family in China, that they would be putting them in any kind of danger? Um, as you know, that you know, CCP, and the, uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party, um, they, their usual um, tactic is the bullying and hostage diplomacy. Um, around the world. So um, I, I think the government, before they um, move this part, uh, move this step, I, I'm sure they already have it in mind because this is a new thing from China. Um, and uh, no matter what you do, um, they will challenge us. Right. Uh, the, the first avenue we're hearing of this program is to expedite work permits. Uh, there would be three-year work permits uh, for people from Hong Kong uh, who have graduated from either a recognized Canadian or an overseas post-secondary school, uh, that if they've graduated in the last five years, uh, if approved, they could bring a spouse, a partner, children as well. Do you think that that will help or will there be people that will take advantage of that? I'm sure they will because I know a group of people right now, uh, right here in uh, in uh, Vancouver. Um, I, I know a few. Um, some of them, their working permit is expired, and they are not able to renew the, the 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 permit because of they couldn't find a job in the first place because of a, a, a pandemic, and uh, they don't want to go back to Hong Kong because of the great danger um, at the situation uh, because they've been helping uh, our movement. So this group of people that definitely will, will help them to stay in Canada.
this plan, uh, even though it is a bit of a shift or a big shift, uh, the the critics, uh, the conservative critics uh, are, are critical of it, saying that it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough to stand up to the government in China. Do you think it should go farther as well? Of course, like I said before, the first you know the first group of people is those people in Hong Kong are in quite danger right now, and then hasn't really far enough have any detailed plan for those um, in danger, the people in danger. So that that point, I certainly will look into it. And also, secondly, I think we still have to involve the military act to those um, uh, uh, Chinese or, or Hong Kong officials who uh, violate the uh, human rights and, and put put those people in such a situation right now. Uh, It wasn't that long ago we were looking at coverage of the rallies of some pretty violent clashes taking place in Hong Kong. Are you fearful or concerned that with the pandemic and with so many people focused on that and focused on other things right now, that what's happening in Hong Kong isn't getting enough attention? Yes, yes, I do. Because um, people kind of really uh, pay attention to uh, con- condemn uh, the the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic right now, and uh, and but um, but these things happen in Hong Kong still able to uh, um, pass it on to us because like what it has done yesterday, like Hong Kong um, government had uh, removed the four pole democracy Hong Kong legislator. Um, so, uh, um, but like I, our minister just said this morning also that because of that situation that, you know, make us go faster, and in a way maybe good, then, you know, make us go faster because all happened in Hong Kong really, really affect people around the world. Are you getting a sense or are you talking to people in Hong Kong as well as to what's happening on the ground, uh, where the fear level is, uh, what's really happening day to day? Yeah, day to day, 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 a lot of uh, information came out is people um, scared and people hiding because they has been uh, their ID have been recorded and the ID number have been recorded by the police and um, they're not able to leave Hong Kong and people kind of thinking about uh, leaving but um, they don't have enough money and um, for those young people of course they are in a really um, situation that they are they are scared every day. Even though when you go out to the street or walk around and they they people following them, so um, it's just really chaos in uh, Hong Kong right now, uh, especially those young people in Hong Kong. And is there any sense that I mean, this is Canada making the move to say, "Come here, we'll make it easier for you to come to Canada where you can be safe." Uh, but is that also, in a way, then kind of throwing in the towel, saying, "Okay, well, China's not honoring this treaty, and there's no way that uh, countries can come together, or that there can be pressure to try and get them to reverse that." We we are trying um, because you, you can see around the world at all. The- most of the uh, democratic country already said something, but Canada is the last one to uh, uh, open our door to the Hong Kong protester. So you, you can see UK, US and Australia, they already said so. So um, uh, I think Hong Kong, I mean, uh, Canada government can do more um, in, this, in this way to help um, the Hong Kong protesters. All right. Well, Mabel, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having us.